0: This is the seventh in our eight-week series on being a covenantal community. This morning, we're going to look at what it means to be a worshiping community. And our texts this morning are Psalm 95 and Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If you turn to Psalm 95, and please give your attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord... Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And now turning over to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask that you would allow us to enter into your presence, to worship you and to hear you as you speak to us in your word. Lord, remind us of all of your great deeds, that we might know you, that we might love you and serve you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, We are now at week seven of an eight-week series on covenant community. And this week's subject is a bit interesting. Because it's placed here in the series because the fact that we are a community that worships is a consummating principle we come together as God's people and the highest and greatest thing that we can do is worship the Lord but the thing that is interesting is is that this characteristic of God's people is also a foundational principle the fact that we worship the true and living God is what makes us all of the characteristics that we have been studying because we are a worshiping people We are therefore a humble people. Because we are a worshipping people, we are a forgiving people, a loving people, a hospitable people, and a praying people. You see, worshipping the Lord our God is the sum of who we were created to be. But it is also the foundation for all that we were meant to be. And so this morning we will look at three things about worship. We will look at the necessity of worship... We'll look at the focus of our worship, and we'll look at the fruit of worship, all from these two texts, as we learn more about the importance of worship in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Let's begin then by thinking about the necessity of worship. Why is it that we gather together to worship? Is this just something that we do to help ourselves to feel good? Is it something that we should do because it's expected of us? We don't want others to ask us later in the week, where were you on Sunday? I didn't see you. No, worship is something that is a a very part and parcel of our being. It is necessary, first and foremost, because it is commanded. Worship is a part of who we are. We were created to look and to seek after something greater. And worship is what brings us face to face with what is greater than we are. It brings us face to face with the Lord our God. And because of this, it's not something that's optional that we can take or leave at will. God directs us to come and to worship Him with a command. We see this over and over again emphasized in this psalm. Do you see the commands one after another? Verse 1, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise. Verse 2, let us come into His presence, let us make a joyful noise. Verse 6, let us worship, let us kneel. All of these are direct commands that come from the Lord our God. You see, the further we get from understanding the majesty, the sovereignty, and the glory of God, the less... We are to participate in worship. We're seeing this throughout the evangelical church, even in our day. Forty years ago or fifty years ago, those who were committed to the church and to the worship of God would be in worship not just four times a month, but likely eight morning and evening, or at least six or seven. Now statistics and studies tell us that someone is a a Rock-solid member of a church, a frequent attender on worship, if they're found in worship three times a month. Because for many of us, we lead so busy a life. There are so many things that drag on us between work and extracurricular activities and children and parents and travel that we simply don't have time to pause and worship. But you see, God has commanded us to come to worship for a reason. First and foremost, because He is due the worship and honor that we bring to Him. This is who God is, and He directs us to worship, and He sets it on our hearts that we would long to worship Him. You see, Augustine, I think, put it best when he said, we have in each of us a God-shaped hole that only the Lord can fill. You see, there is a part of our lives that does not feel right or normal or ordinary. There is something missing unless we look to the one who has made us and we long to worship and adore him. Now, perhaps you have this same experience. I will admit, I am a pastor. But on those rare occasions when I am sick or someplace where I cannot get to worship, my entire day is off. I don't know what to do with myself. Sometimes my week gets messed up because I use worship as the start of my week to equip me for all that comes at me. And there is a great deal that comes at us, isn't there? How do we manage to put up with all of the challenges that are before us unless we first gaze into the face of the one who has created all things and who is sovereign over all of our troubles and trials? You see... The Lord knows we need worship, and that's why He commands it. It's not just a command, it is a cry of the heart. Oh, come, let us worship the Lord. The Lord calls upon you to come and to see Him, and to see His mighty works, to see what He has done. And the longer that we see who the Lord is and what He has done, the better equipped we are for life's many challenges. Worship is also very humbling, isn't it? Look at verse 6. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Worship is commanded to us, and it is not about how great we are. You see, we are called to bow down and to acknowledge our relationship with God, that He is our superior, that He is the one who looks after us, who guides us, and who cares for us. We're called to kneel and to acknowledge our helplessness before God. Worship reminds us of who we are and what we need and how God provides. That's why God commands worship. But worship is not just commanded. It is also active. We are to be engaged in worship. Worship is not a spectator sport. It is not something that we can be passive in. The church has struggled with this throughout the centuries. It came to a height in the late Middle Ages in which people would come into a space of worship in which professional musicians and singers would perform and they would sit and listen and in which someone would speak in a language they did not know, in a direction facing away from them, and they would simply sit and spectate and wait for the spectacle to be over. In the Reformation, the church recovered participatory worship. It recovered congregational singing, congregational prayer. There is a reason in worship that we have a corporate amen. It's not just so that I know you're awake. You are to be paying attention as we are led in prayer. You are to be joining your hearts to mine and to others around you, praying together corporately for the church of Jesus Christ, for her needs and for the gospel. And then together as one corporate people, we come together in a thunderclap with an amen. You see, we participate We don't just wait for the scripture to be done being read. We don't just wait for the sermon to be finished and check our watch. No, what we do is we are active. We are listening. We are thinking. We are jotting down questions we have. We are thinking about how this will apply to our life. God wants you to be active. You should be breaking a sweat in worship. Worship is active. We acknowledge God's greatness before us. By breaking out in song. Do you see over and over again the psalmist tells us that we are to sing. We are to sing with a shout. This is something that comes second nature to us, doesn't it? You've seen it in your own home. When things are going great, what do you do? You hum a tune. Or music comes on the radio and you sing along. You're far more likely to sing along in the car when you're cruising along with no traffic than when you're stuck, aren't you? You see, when we feel joy, when we feel purpose, when we feel gladness, a song breaks out in our hearts. What better place for that to happen than in the corporate worship of the living God? We long to be with the Lord, and so we are called not just to participate, but to participate in His presence. Come into His presence The psalmist says, are you aware as you sit and fumble through the hymnal or try not to fall asleep in the prayer or wonder whether you can sing on on key that the king of glory is in your presence? We don't need to wait for Him to be here. The great glory of our omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent God is that He is with us as we worship Him. And He is due far more and far greater than we can muster. But what great grace that He condescends to be with us, to hear our praises. He is like the loving Father that hears His Toddler daughters say, dad, dad, and thinks she's just recited the Gettysburg Address. It's the greatest words he's ever heard in his life. This is how we are before a loving God. He comes to us. He allows us into his presence. And we come thankful. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, the psalmist says. We are to be thankful for what He has done, to know who He is, and to be glad that He rules over us. We kneel before Him because He is our King and ruler. We are to be engaged, but we are also to be engaged wholeheartedly with our heart. We are to be joyful. The psalmist says, let us sing to the Lord. And you have to understand that this is not the kind of under your breath I'm afraid someone will hear me singing. The word here has the connotation of shouting to the rooftops. Of declaring so that anyone who is near can hear. It is a characteristic of God's people. More than two dozen times this verb is used in the Psalms. More than a dozen times in the book of Isaiah. It's used to describe how we declare God's greatness to ourselves, to the rest of the community, and to the world outside. Isaiah says in chapter 26, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Do you feel like life has stretched you too far? That all of the moisture has gone out of your body? That you're dry and dusty? The Lord calls you in that estate to come and to worship Him and He will meet with you and He will fill your soul with a longing and a love for Him that you will burst forth in song. You will not be able to prevent it. You will blast it out like a trumpet, the psalmist says, for the whole world to hear. In Psalm 75, this same joyful noise is used in Psalm 71. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. Psalm 145 says, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Have you thought about that the joy that shows from your heart to your lips is like witnessing to the world? Now, I know we can't all sing on key. I know we all don't enjoy singing. But if the pastor gave you an assignment... To either sing heartily, or to memorize the book of Romans, and to use that to testify. I'm thinking it's easier to start with singing. This is something that could just come naturally out of our hearts. And others see this, and they want to know the one that we worship. We are to be bold in our worship. Now notice there is no option here about how much we will be involved in worship. The scripture calls us to give all of ourselves in worship. Our minds, our hearts, our souls. And the interesting thing is, is that our focus in this worship is to be on the living God and not on ourselves. I find it interesting that whenever we come to the subject of worship, especially even a psalm like Psalm 95, our thoughts go to how we would worship. What does this mean? Do I have to sing with a hymnal? Do I have to sing with my head up? Do I have to have my eyes open when we pray? Or should they be closed? What's the right way to stand or sit when Scripture is read? But do you notice something? We focus on the how of worship so much. The psalmist doesn't. He focuses on the who of worship. The entirety of this psalm is about the Lord and calling us to worship the Lord. It's not a playbook about how we should worship. It is focusing on the Lord because He is first and foremost our great God and King. Look with me at verse 3. The Lord is a great King, a great God, and a great King above all gods. That little word at the beginning of verse 3 tells us why we sing, why we come into His presence, why we even worship. It's because, for, God is great. It's not so that we feel good. It's not because we're obedient. It's not because we feel we ought to. It's because God is great and worthy of worship. He is a mighty and powerful God. He is a great God. The word that is used here in the Hebrew describes a great and mighty and powerful warrior. What better way to meet the week's challenges than to come into the presence of the most powerful warrior of the universe and know He is on your side. Isn't that comforting? You know, some of you know that before we lived here in Texas and before I went to seminary, we lived in Ohio. And I had the, the challenge to be a Michigan man outside Cleveland. And there were a great many Ohio State fans around us. But I was never afraid of being a Michigan man because there was someone else there with me. He was a player who played in the Rose Bowl for Michigan and played offensive guard. When I stood next to George, I wasn't worried about what anyone else thought. He was powerful and mighty and he had a presence about him. And this is, after a fashion, the way we should face life and its challenges, knowing God is with us and He is great and mighty and powerful. He is our King. He is not just a great God. He is greater than all of the so-called gods. He is the one who is above all others. He is not just the Christian God alongside a Muslim God and a Buddhist God. He is the only God. You see, the world wants you to look at God as this kind of small, provincial deity. And He might have some influence inside a church, but not in your home. And certainly not in your workplace. And not outside in the marketplace, because we need to respect other gods and other things. But you see, the God of the Bible brooks no rivals. There is no God like God. He is the God over all. And this is because of who He is. This is why the Israelites, when they are delivered from the Egyptians at the Red Sea, they break out into worship and song, and they say, O oh Lord, who is like you among the gods? Glorious in holiness, working wonders. Is this the great God that you worship and serve? God is our great God and King, and He is also our great God and Creator. Look at what the psalmist writes. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are His also. The seas He made them. The earth He formed them. God is everywhere. Just as the psalmist writes in Psalm 139. There is no place we can go where He is not. Now sometimes I fear that we have an attitude that that concerns us. Because there's no place we can go to hide from the justice and holiness of God. There's no place we can nourish our sin. But thinking of the fact that God is everywhere should be the greatest comfort imaginable. Think of the darkest, most difficult place in your life. You can't shut God out of there. The greatest worry that you have, God is there. The farthest hopes that you dare to dream of. God is there. There is nowhere you can go. He is the creator of all things. Everything owes its existence to God. This world is not random and out of control. And you see, here is where we see philosophically why people believe in the teaching of evolution. It doesn't have to do with a fossil record. It doesn't have to do with unrepeatable scientific experiments. It has to do with the fact that they do not want to worship the Creator. And so they have set up a barrier between them and the Creators and drawn in scratchy crayon billions and billions of years over it as if somehow that will blot out the evidence that God is real and that He has made all things. And so we, as the covenantal community of Jesus Christ, as we worship the living God, we declare that God is real and that He is to be believed and that He has made all things and He has made all things in order and He has made them good. We look at the world and we see the handiwork that He has put forth and it is marvelous and it testifies to to the greatness specifically of who Jesus Christ is. Because the scripture tells us that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We indeed are made for a purpose, to glorify and to enjoy God. God is our great God and King. He is our great God and Creator, and He is our great God and Redeemer. Look with me at verse 7. For He is our God, we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And again, go back up to verse 1. He is the rock of our salvation. We worship not God. Do you know that? You do not worship God. You worship our God. The pronouns make all the difference. He's not some distant, unknowable deity. He is our God who is in relationship with us. He desires to have fellowship with us. And we come into His presence knowing we are welcome because the Lord is in relationship with us. He is our shepherd, the psalmist tells us. Now what does a shepherd do? A shepherd leads and protects the flock. He leads us because we are the people of his pasture, the psalmist writes. This reminds us of another psalm, Psalm 23, how the Lord is our shepherd and how he leads us beside still waters. He leads us into green pastures. This is who God is. He not only is our God and creator, he is the one who cares for us. We're not just worshipers of God. We are the people he cares for. And we see this in living color in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament in which we watch Him take His people and cause them to sit down in an orderly fashion and to feed them truth from His lips and to literally provide for their daily bread from one boy's lunch. Do you doubt that God can take care of you? The one you worship is yours. And He is your shepherd. And He is the one who speaks to us. He is not silent or mysterious. He speaks to us in worship. And He doesn't speak to us in fortune cookie conundrums. He speaks to us in our own language, after our own thoughts. He condescends to us and He comforts us with His word. Even as we come to worship Him, a key element of worship is hearing from God in His Word. This is the focus of our worship. It is the Lord God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He is worthy. But there's a third thing about worship. It's not just that it's necessary. It's not just that we are to be focused upon the Lord our God it is thirdly, there is a fruit that comes to us in our lives from worship. The first fruit we see is that it is a reminder of God's claim on our lives. And we see this at the end of Psalm 95. God calls us to worship Him, but look at what He does in verse 8. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa. God pleads with us to worship Him. He bears with us patiently, gently, and kindly. Now stop and think about that for a moment and think about how impatient we are and how unlikely we are to bear with people. We think we're being magnanimous when we give someone a second chance. and how often does God Meet with us after we have failed Him. How often does He call us back to Himself? You see, the fruit of worship is to know who God is, that He is a loving and a merciful God, and the only reason we can come into His presence is because of His character and His nature. God actually desires our good more than we do. Can you imagine that? The book of Hebrews makes this clear. No less than three times in that book do we hear Him repeat the call to hear His voice and not to harden our hearts. Because we need to hear this over and over again. We think we know better. We think somehow there is some ulterior motive in God. You know what that's like, don't you? As you've grown up, you remember as you were growing up the way your parents would continue to repeat things to you over and over again about what they wanted you to do and what you should do. And after a while, you might have just tuned them out. I know what I need to do. Dad, you don't need to tell me how I'm supposed to work. Mom, you don't need to tell me how I'm supposed to study. Don't tell me how to drive the car. I know what I'm doing. Because what we think is it's some mechanism to just control us. What we don't realize until we get older and have children of our own is that Our parents had our best interests in heart. This is how the Lord comes and pleads with us. It's not for His glory. His glory is magnificent. We can't add to His glory simply by worshiping Him. God would still be as glorious as He ever has been and ever will be if you never worshiped Him again. The loss would be yours. That's why He pleads with you. And He reminds you of what happens if we fail to worship Him, if we drift from Him, if we fall away. Look at verse 9. Your fathers put me to the test. They put me to the proof. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They shall not enter my rest. You see, God pleads with us and He warns us that as we drift from Him, we are the losers. We lose His light. We lose His love. We lose our purpose. We are called together as a people of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace and by the blood of the Lamb that we might worship the King of kings. God's claim on us means there is no middle ground. If we fail to worship Him, What follows is separation from him. That's why Jesus broke down the wall of separation. This may be hard for us to understand, but Jesus did not suffer and die the torments of the wrath of God so you could get a get out of hell free card. That was not his primary purpose. His purpose was to purchase for himself a people that would be God's people, God's family, that would forever worship and adore the Lord, our Creator and Redeemer. That's why he broke down the wall of separation. And when we fail to understand this, we fail to understand a key component of the community that Jesus is building. And we build that wall of separation once again between us and God. God calls you to worship Him. This is the true test. A second fruit of worship is that there is a reminder of God's power. We see this in Acts chapter 2. We see that worship shows us the power of God not only in what we see, but in the effects around us. Look here at verse 43 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts. After they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, awe came upon every soul. Do you see what worship does? It changes the way we view the world. As the disciples became devoted to worship, they were brought into God's presence and they were filled with a sense of awe. A worship leads us to see the beauty in the world. Worship leads us to see the value of in people. Worship even leads us to see God's purpose in the trials and tribulations that come upon us. Worship changes our perspective and our view of everything around us, our circumstances, our relationships. But it doesn't just change how we view the world, it also changes how we act in accordance with that view. Look at verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look at the powerful change that worship enacts here. It's so powerful, it's frightening, isn't it? I think the thing we want to do most with verses 44 and 45 is to try and establish reasons why we don't need to do this. Because it makes us so uncomfortable. Do you see how radically other-centered they became because of worship? Do you see how it changed not only what they thought, but what they did? They became actually a true community. If we are a worshiping community of Jesus Christ, we will become a loving, forgiving, praying humble, hospitable community with each other. But it begins with worship. The fruit of worship is found in the way we look at things and in the way we do things. Because you see, at its core, worship not only changes our viewpoint, it not only changes our actions, it actually changes our hearts. Do you see this in verse 46? And day by day, attending the temple together, that is, worshiping, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Do You see, worship changes our hearts so radically, we actually become thankful for something as simple as lunch. We can't eat lunch without giving glory to God. We give Him praise and glory and honor because He is good and we are thankful and generous at our core because of what God has done in our lives because He has drawn us to worship Him. How can we be thankful for each other and what we bring to each other? It begins with worshiping the true and living God. The last thing we see is is that worship has its fruit because it changes our relationships as well. Look at verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Do you see how often we need the Bible to correct correct our common sense? When we think of gathering together to worship, what do we think will happen with our relationship with those outside? We think that they will fear us, that they will hate us, that they will persecute us. But do you see what actually happens in the Bible? When they come together as a community and declare the goodness and the greatness of the redeeming God, they actually grow in favor with other people. Now, why is this so? Is this because all of a sudden in the book of Acts... All of these secular humanists decided they needed to read and believe the Bible? No. But if worship changes who we are, if worship shows us that we're not all important, God is. If worship shows us to put others first, if worship shows us that others have value and we should treat them this way, then when others see that attitude and heart in us, they are going to be caught. They may not know the words to the hymn, but they can see it in our lives and in our hearts. And then they may ask us, what are those words to them? Why do you sing them? What do they mean to you? Worship provides us with a change in the way that we relate to others, to those outside and to those inside. Because you see, God uses worship to build His church. That's what's happening here. God is building His church through worship. He's using it to strengthen His church. Do you desire to be a community that knows the Lord Jesus Christ, that follows after Him and that makes a change in the world? It begins right here, right now, with you and your relationship with your Heavenly Father with the Son of God, with the Holy Spirit, as we worship and adore Him and declare that He is great above all. This is what it means to be a worshiping community of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the way in which You remind us that You are great and that you have done great things. Lord, we ask this morning that you would fill our hearts with a longing to worship you. Help us, O Lord. Keep us near the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.